All right, good evening, everybody. Tonight we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapters 2 and 3, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. 2 and 3, we'll get through those. Tonight we're going to be, after the service, taking this place down a little bit and getting ready for the garage sale, uh, receiving things tomorrow. Um, but if we can get a jump on it tonight, that'd be great. So if any of you guys want to stick around afterwards, after we're done praying, ministering to people, we don't want to get right at it. I want to make sure uh, we do our God stuff first, you know, and then, uh, then we can get prepared for the garage sale. But if you feel like you can, you have time to stick around, we'd appreciate the help. Otherwise, um, don't feel obligated. We can get it done. So uh, let's pray and we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for um, your word. We thank you for the breakthroughs we have in our lives when we submit ourselves to new scriptures, scriptures that strike us in our heart in a different way by your spirit. You're our teacher and our guide. And when we submit to those promptings by your spirit, our life changes. And we pray that takes place tonight. We pray that you have us, help us to have ears to hear. Um, and, and we want to be doers, but we first got to hear it and uh, we've got to apply it. And uh, I pray that you'd help us to do that. Help us to see Paul's heart here as he tries to minister to this church that he loves, um, but they've forgotten. And uh, Lord, help us to have ears to ear. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, although we're in 1 Corinthians 2 and 3, I do want you to turn to Acts 18. Acts 18, because that is where we have it documented Paul coming to Corinth. And I just wanted to read this because it, it is, uh, there's a point to this. It does apply to these two chapters as Paul mentions to the, in, in these two and three um, that he had fear and trembling when he came there. And so we need to have some background on that. What do you mean fear and trembling? Paul doesn't seem like the kind of guy that would have fear and trembling, but he did. Um, this is a guy who knew his mission. He knew his calling. He knew Jesus intimately, um, one of the few people in the world that's ever heard him audibly, you know, um, seen him sort of, well, blinded, but then, you know, and so for him to have fear and trembling, I think that's important because I hear scriptures being used and tossed from Christian to Christian that are supposed to either I don't know if we're trying to berate somebody who has fear and trembling or whether we're trying to make ourselves look better or, or we just don't know. But to look at somebody who has that fear and trembling and to come alongside of them and say, you know, we're not supposed to have a spirit of fear, but want a power and might. Well, that's true. And of all the people in the New Testament, Paul would be that guy. But he shows up at Corinth and he has fear and trembling. And I want you to see what Jesus says to him to alleviate them of that fear and trembling, because that's what we're supposed to say to each other when they have that fear and trembling. Verse 1, chapter 18, after these things, Paul departed from Athens, was not a successful mission trip there, by the way, and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. We read about them last week. Those are our tent makers. And he's a tent maker by trade as well. Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And so these two were placed there by the Lord through persecution at the right place at the right time for Paul to interact with them. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, tent making, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. That is at Corinth. Okay. Now it doesn't go well. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit to testify to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. 
But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshiped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Remember Paul says last week, I don't remember if I baptized any of you, but they were. Some of them were. Now, here's the important part. Verse 9. Now, the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak. Do not keep silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. After Jesus speaks to him in this beautiful vision, seeing and hearing him, one of the very few people, Jesus' comments, I'm with you. I'm going to protect you while you're here. I know it's been ugly. I mean, I'm adding to it a little bit, but that's Paul's fear. I just made the entire Jewish community angry. What they do is they beat guys like me, and he's experienced that. He's moved to a guy right next door to the synagogue, Crispus, to start a church next to the Jewish synagogue that just rejected him. There's some fear. Nobody looks forward to a beatdown, you know? I mean, we think about it in our minds. Well, I would stand up and I'd do this. That's fine. Maybe the first 12 times. But after a while, it gets old and it hurts and you wince and you're waiting and you can understand where Paul is in his walk, you know? So he hears he's going to be okay there, and he spends the most amount of time in any of his ministry at this place. I think I'm going to camp here for a while. Jesus said, no one's going to hurt me while I'm here. I'm going to sit here for a year and a half. I'm going to recoup, you know. I feel for him. Paul had such a heart, had such a love for people, and people knew that about him, that when he would leave a place, they would fall on his neck and weep. He was that kind of gentle guy. Now, what the Corinthians have made the mistake in that Paul was gentle like that and kind and loving, and they probably wept on his neck also when he left Corinth. But as he's been gone, they've had new teachers come in. They've added other people into their lives, more Bible teaching, which is fine. Nothing wrong with that, except they would, they were harsh. And so they looked at Paul differently, like he was a weakling, like he was someone who was to be a pushover and didn't really prepare them for the real world of Christianity, you know, and we really need to toughen up, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm a, you know, they're going to puff up in their spirit. And so Paul writes them a few letters, probably in a way that they'd never heard him talk to them before. And he's going to bring that up a couple times. Now, he says, I, I came to you in weakness, and, I, and I'm writing you this letter ahead of time, because when I come, it's not going to be gentle if you don't repent. Paul loved Jesus more than he loved the Corinthian church, but he loved the Corinthian church so much that he wanted to make sure they understood who Jesus was. It's a balancing act, you know. So in chapter 2 of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, as he just said, if you're going to glory in anything, glory in the Lord. Don't glory in who you know or who you listen to or, or who, your, who your favorite is or whatever. You glory in the Lord. Don't glory in your gifts that you have, that you're expressing. 
Glory in the one that gave you the gift, you know, glory in the one that saved the one who taught you the word of God, glory in the Lord. He says in verse one, and I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to do anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's probably the most important section of Scripture as a new believer. You can underline circle. It is not through the wisdom of men that you make yourself a stronger believer. There's nothing wrong with studying the Bible all day long. Do it. But it's by the Spirit and the power of God. I can't emphasize that enough. You're probably tired of me saying it. But there are so many people that want everything that God has for them that only comes by the Holy Spirit in their lives, but they want to get it another way. There's got to be another way. I hear you. I hear you. The Holy Spirit, he's a good guy for some. I want everything you have in your life. I'm not sure about the Holy Spirit. You can't have it. You can't have it without him. He is the source. The whole, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And you're asking God to indwell you with something other than the, the purposed occupant of your house. He's the owner now. You've given your life to him. It has to be occupied by the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, it's an empty house. It's a whitewashed tomb. It's a, it's a facade. It looks like a church. It looks like a temple. It looks like a place where God would reside, but it's not, he's not there. It's got to be by the Spirit. There's no other way. And so Paul makes a decision in verse 2, and that's important. I determined. It's like he had to restrain himself. Paul's a heady guy. We know that. He's, he's smart. Sometimes, he, even Peter says that. Sometimes Paul's epistles are a little hard to understand. Peter said that about him, you know? So we know he's capable of just, I mean, laying it out to the point where you'd be like, well, I'm not a believer in Jesus, but I cannot refute you with an argument. I can't beat you intellectually. But Paul knows that's not how people get saved. People get saved in the demonstration of the power of God by the Holy Spirit. That's how people get saved. So he says, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That ought to be enough. Paul knew that. He says, the power to save people is in talking about Jesus and the crucifixion and the resurrection from the dead. That is the power of salvation. It isn't about me talking about the law and how this and that and the other thing, or this prophecy over here, this, that. He says, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because that is not what he said in Athens. The, the town he was at before he came to Corinth, he never got there in his speech. He's on Mars Hill. Everybody's sharing. I've shared the story. You've read it yourself. And he goes on and on. He talks about the resurrection of the dead. And right before he's about to talk about Jesus, you know, his next, that, that's right in the outline. It's the very next thing. They walk away from him because he, oh, resurrection from the dead. I don't get that. They tuned him out. So instead, Paul says, I'm going to start with that. I'm going to start with Jesus Christ and him crucified. I'm not going to build up to it. I'm going to go right at it. 
I determined to not know anything other than that. If you don't know anything except the way you got saved through Jesus Christ and him crucified, that is enough to witness to every person in your life. You are equipped. If you know the cross, the crucifixion, and the resurrection from the dead, you are equipped to witness to everybody in your life. You don't need to wait anymore. You don't need to order another book. You don't need to wait until you're mature or whatever. Just start telling people about the crucifixion. That's it. Paul determined to know nothing other than that. He says, I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And people got saved. My preaching, it wasn't that great. I wasn't persuasive. It's hard not to try to be persuasive with people, isn't it? You want to persuade people. You want to persuade them. And even we have some scripture that actually says that. Let's reason together. Let's work this out. Let's, well, that's with you and God. When it comes to me, I'm called to testify. I'm simply here to tell you what Jesus has done for me. And I have a hard time with people that they don't want that in their lives. So I start to persuade. The problem is if I can talk them into Jesus Christ, somebody else can talk them out of Jesus Christ. That's always the case. Oh, I think I got so-and-so to come to church. Finally talked him into it. I understand. And maybe that's a start. But it has to be by power. It has to be the power of God. It has to be the Holy Spirit that changes them. They have to be born again. That's what sustain, That's how people become Christians and are sustained Christians. It's because they're not pretending or following a plan or there's no five-step program or what's the next whatever in my discipleship course. It is, I am a born-again believer in Jesus Christ and I'm led by the Spirit. They have a living witness inside of them, the Holy Spirit, who's telling them what to do. It's an earpiece from God. Turn right, turn left, don't do that, do that. We couldn't be in anybody's life enough to keep them saved. It's impossible. They've got to have the Holy Spirit. And for any of us to not understand that is it's detrimental to our witnessing or to our hope of people getting saved. We have a lot of problems in this world. We have a lot of problems in this world. And they're all sin-related, obviously. And there's only one solution to that. I'm not going to say Jesus He is, but people need to be born again. I understand that saying that the world gets irritated when we say we're going to pray or we're going to have a moment of silence or whatever. We can see that coming more and more. And it almost works for the believer that is not walking with Jesus every day because they almost feel foolish themselves. You know, I'm tired of praying about it too because it doesn't seem to be working. Well, I don't know what we thought prayer was going to do. Pray for what? That the evil people in the world would just stop being evil? That's not going to happen unless they get born again. There's no other hope. We can't stop abortion without people being born again. We can't stop mass shootings without people being born again. We can't stop divorce until we have people getting born again. We can't raise godly kids unless the parents are born again. The most important thing you can do in this world is tell your neighbor about Jesus Christ and show them and demonstrate the power of God in your life and the Holy Spirit that they might be born again. And then, and then only then, will things begin to look better or be better for someone's life. You, Not everybody, but the ones you talk to, it's far better than the Band-Aids we put on. Telling people about Jesus Christ is the most important thing and the most actionable thing you can do. 
And when we don't do that, I can't complain. If I'm not talking about Jesus with everybody, I can't complain. I have friends um, that are Christians or say they are, and they have friends that aren't. And they've been friends with these people for decades, and the people around them still are their best friends and are not saved. Well, aren't we supposed to be there for those lost souls? Aren't we supposed to witness? Aren't we supposed to continue? Yes, we are. When Jesus sat down with sinners and tax collectors, they stopped being sinners and tax collectors. He lived his life in such a way that it was so powerful and strong that either continued to walk with him and were changed and transformed by being in his presence, or they divided from him and were his worst enemy. I have a problem with the world being such good friends with Christians and feel no conviction around them at all. Something's wrong. I'm not saying we need to go up to all of our friends and say, hey, by the way, if you don't get saved, I'm not going to be your friend anymore. No. But if I'm living my life in such a way that glorifies God in every aspect of it, it'll be very uncomfortable for them to invite me to this, that, or the other thing, or be around me in their current state. We need to make people uncomfortable with their sin. That's what Jesus did. I didn't come to bring unity. I came to bring a sword. You're either with me or you're not with me. He who has the son has the father. He who does not have the son does not have the father. And everybody around him knew that. And that's why half the crowd was saying Hosanna. And then two days later, they're saying crucify him. He was a divisive person. We just need to live out loud. Very much out loud. We have... No time to be quiet anymore or conceal it or wait for the right moment. Just be a Christian. Just be that. I'm not saying we have to confront everybody or get in their face. And I'm saying just be. I'm not going to cuss and swear. I'm not going to join you in that. I'm not going to watch that. I don't participate in those things. And I'm going to tell them why. Because I love Jesus more than that. And to me, and according to God's word, that's sin. That'll make an uncomfortable moment with your best friend who didn't realize you felt that way. It's important. I came with weakness, fear, and trembling. My speech was not with persuasive words, but I did come with a demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul wanted to leave this church on fire, not by their own enthusiasm, but by the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Verse 6. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of the sage, nor of the rulers of the sage, who are coming to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. He's going to go on to describe, nobody really knows anybody else's heart but the person who owns the heart. It's the very next thing he's going to talk about. He's going to say, likewise, no one knows the heart of God except the Holy Spirit. We can guess, just like other people guess about you. Anybody get tired of that? Guessing your feelings, guessing your thoughts, imagining things about you, but never talking to you about it. 
never asking you directly. Paul says you have to have the Holy Spirit because that's the only way you're going to know the heart of God. Otherwise, you're guessing. You're guessing. The sword of the Spirit, and it has to be in the Spirit's hand, is the Word of God. The Word of God not in the hand of the Holy Spirit is dry. It's very important to understand that. This is a sword meant to be wielded by its owner, the Holy Spirit, who uses it in our lives and in other people's lives. When we don't have the Holy Spirit and we pick it up, well, we bumble a lot. That verse 9 is important, and I want to back up to that just a little bit before we move forward, because that's often referred to as the things that we should wait for that are coming to us in heaven. That's not true, necessarily. In context, Paul is saying that is what we can experience now. People don't know. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. I'm starting to experience that since I've been saved. I'm starting to experience how great life can be. Not trouble-free, not trial-free, not tribulation-free. They're all there. But everybody has that, and I have Christ as I go through those things, and it's amazing. It's amazing the lack of things or the, the things that don't move me that should move me, you know? The things that move other people or bring people to their dramatic crescendo in their life, you know, drama. It doesn't move me so much anymore in my life. There's a love, there's a sureness I have. Paul has that in a sense. Sometimes he's scared, but as Jesus comes alongside him and says, I'm with you, no one's going to hurt you, please speak, don't keep silent. I don't want you to be silent, you need to speak. The reason Jesus tells Paul that in chapter 18 is because Paul wanted to keep silent. You don't tell someone to speak and to not keep silent unless that is exactly what they want to do. Paul. Paul wanted to keep quiet. Nobody could keep Paul quiet. He was, that afraid, he was that afraid. God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. I can't know the things of God without the Holy Spirit. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. Paul is dealing with a group that believes I have this and you don't have this. That's their thinking. That's in a nutshell. I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul. Well, I have Paul and you have Apollos. And you don't have Paul and I, and they're arguing about it. I speak in tongues, you don't speak in tongues. Well, I do miracles and you don't do miracles. And it's all about what we have and what they don't have. So what he's trying to get across, he's going to make it very clear at the end of chapter three, we have everything. Nobody's without. You didn't earn it. God gave it to you. And not only do you have it, but everybody else around you has it also. The Holy Spirit is for everybody. It's for all. Not just for you. You're not above. You're not more Holy Spirited. And he's trying to get that across. We didn't receive the spirit of the world, so I don't know why we act like we have the spirit of the world. That should be foreign to us. The Spirit of God in me tells me when the Spirit of the world is trying to intrude into my life. 
He's always faithful to do that to us, to warn us. Here's my spirit, and you know what that's like. It's peaceful, it's gracious, it's merciful, it's loving. And then you can feel the spirit of the world creeping in or trying to encroach upon his turf in your life. And the spirit warns you about it. You feel that? Yeah, but I think I have to deal with it. I never asked you to deal with it. I want you to stay here in my Holy Spirit, walking in my spirit. Don't move over into those things. You haven't received that spirit. Don't let it into your life. Stay away from it. These things we also speak, verse 13, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Paul makes a distinction between a natural man and a spirit-filled man. One's carnal One's moved by the things of this world. Another person is spiritual, comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. When I see the world, I have a world, I have a biblical worldview. I look at the world and I'm like, ooh, what prophecy are we going to see completed today? Most of the world doesn't think that way, and most Christians don't. They look around and they think the latest conspiracy theory has somehow been uncovered and that I'm going to reveal it to the world. And no, 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 no. The biggest (laughs) red flag are conspiracy theories. It's got so many Christians running after these things. It's like, no, keep your eye on the ball. It's Jesus Christ and him crucified. We knew this is all going to happen. This is all foretold. We know exactly how this is all going to do. Why are we surprised? There's an Illuminati. Of course there is. There's a bunch of people over there trying to rule the world. I know. And eventually the Antichrist is going to ride to power. It's probably Klaus Schraub, but who cares? What difference does it make? That doesn't change my mission at all. I'm not not exposing it to anybody. I'm just telling people about Jesus Christ and him crucified. People already know they're in trouble. They don't need to hear about the Illuminati to figure out they need to come to Jesus. They need to know they're a wicked sinner themselves. Otherwise, we're trying to save them and avoid Conflict later on in the future. There's going to be conflict. Come to Christ. No, 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 no. Come to Christ and there's going to be conflict. We get our eye off the ball. We as Christians need to compare spiritual things with spiritual things. That's maturity. These things don't move me. These sound bites don't move me. That old roar going in there to break up some kind of uh, you know, debriefing on the latest shooting doesn't, doesn't move me. Yeah, he's a fool. I think everybody knows that about him. But it doesn't surprise me. The world's full of them. Full of them. They're foolish. They don't understand. And here's the key. Nor can they. They can't. I forget that sometimes. I talk to worldly people. I'm like, can't you see what's happening? Don't you understand? They're like, I don't get it. Are you born again? No, I really don't. They don't understand these things. And it's not a secret hidden thing. It's like what God is trying to say here, what Paul is trying to say is first things first. I can't start talking to them about 
Revelation, and Jesus is coming, and oh, it's going to be this, that, there's going to be hail and fire and all this. You know, no, no, no. Step one, you're a sinner. You've broken fellowship with God. You know that he has created everything. I mean, sometimes you have to go, like I said, you got to go clear back to Genesis 1-1 with some people. In the beginning, there was God, and he was before all things. And he started this whole thing and created it, and the evidence is all around us. You have to start there and lead them to that place where they understand they've got sin. God is perfect, otherwise he would fail. The whole creation would fail. He has to be perfect. Therefore, we have to be perfect. But if we're not perfect, what do we do? And you walk them through everything so that they get saved. Then we can start talking about stuff, spiritual things. They can't know these things unless they're saved, unless they're born again. I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, This is where he kind of gets into them a little bit in chapter 3. Now that we've established that, how I came to you, how I was meek and fear and trembling and soft-spoken, but led you to the Lord and did wonderful works of God, and you liked that, and you came to know the Lord. Verse 1, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. When I was there the first time, I talked to you like, here, you want some milk? And I gave you the milk because that's where you were. Paul's a little upset that that's where they still are. Now, I'm not going to put too fine a point on it, but we, we need to graduate. Remember the little Gerber bottles and stuff like that? For those of you who, some of you don't. Some of you, I blend mine myself fine. You know how it got chunkier? As you guys, they got older. Let's put it that way. Starts off with this smooth, nasty stuff. Oh, it's so good. And you try to give it to your baby. You, <laughs> but they'd eat it. And then there's actually a section called graduates. It's a little thicker, a little chunkier. Still about nursing home level, you know, kind of stuff. And still don't want to put it in my mouth, but you do because you love your kids. But what are you trying to bring your kids to? Maturity. You got to start chewing. You got to start cutting your own meat. You got to start preparing your own potato. You got to start doing these things on your own. Eventually, you're going to have to go shopping. You're going to have to go to the grocery store and find the right stuff, and you're going to have to bring it home. You're going to have to turn on an oven eventually. You know, and I laugh about it, but that, that is the goal. You start off with nothing but a bottle and warm milk and their beautiful little eyes looking up at you. And you wish they'd stay that way forever, but they don't. They get bigger. And they need bigger bottles. And they, they don't make bottles big enough, you know. So you start graduating them. And that's the idea with the Christian. I came to you and you're babes. And that's nothing wrong. Everybody starts there. But we got to graduate. We got to learn to choose solid food. I need to learn how to walk by the Spirit and hear His voice and obey Him and not have to ask everybody all the time what my next move is. I know that there is a blessing with a multitude of counselors. There's wisdom, of course. There's that scripture. But you do need to be able to hear his voice and do it on your own. We have to. We've got to be able to read the word of God and rightly divide it ourselves. Prepared meals are wonderful. That's what this is tonight, a prepared meal. I studied, I prepared, I divided it up, got it ready, and I'm presenting it to you in a meal form. Nice to go out to eat once in a while. Once in a while. 
every Wednesday and Sunday, or whenever you guys have Bible studies, you know, with other people, there it is. There's your out to eat. We got to be eating daily, preparing our own meal daily, sitting down daily, cutting our little carrots up, you know, and eating God's word and devouring it and growing. Your spiritual nutrition is right here. This is the manna God has given us. There's no other source of nutrition for the believer. This is it. And we need to eat it. I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Paul's calling him on it. That's carnal. That's a meaty thing to say to someone who needs to grow up a little bit. See, they're not used to Paul talking like this. The last time they heard Paul, Paul was milk, giving him milk. But now it's different. Now you need to stop saying these things. That's like, a, you know, my dad can beat up your dad. Okay, son, we don't say those things at kindergarten. We don't do that. Yes, I probably could. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> you don't say that. That's not what we're here to do. That's immature. Who then is Paul? He includes himself in this. Paul's an important part of their life, but who is he? Who's Apollos? But servants, that's what minister means, servants through whom you believed. And you do believe through servants. People do bring the gospel to you. You do receive from other people. Granted, Paul's not denying that. But we don't talk about that person We talk about the one they brought you to, you know, they brought you to Jesus. The Lord gave to each one. He did it. I planted, Paul planted the seeds, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. I mean, you do your part as a farmer, you put the seeds in the ground. There's a, there, I mean, there is a, there's a flow chart to it. You don't, you don't put the seeds in the ground and then till, right? I mean, there's a, there's a way to do it. So the, the soil gets tilled up. Life's horrible. <laughs> My life's a mess. Then along comes the word of God. Well, that's great, but it's just a seed. Then the water comes and the sunshine comes. But none of those things had anything to do with the growth. That had to do with God. God brought that growth. And all of a sudden, roots go down, leaves pop up. I love seeing that. That's my favorite part. When I go down, Hopkins is, is just outside of Maryville, about 20 miles or so, 30 miles. I don't know. Um, and the brands, I think, own the farm on either side of the road here. They this nice, flat, dark. And I, I watch them plant. And, and then you drive. Just all of a sudden, for some reason, it just pops out. You drive down. All of a sudden, there's plants this big. Just rows of them everywhere. Like, oh, you know. I get so excited. I point it out every year. Because you're like, yeah, Dad, corn. You know. Like, no, look, it's coming up. Corn's coming up. You know, I get excited. You know, I think that's corns or beans. Is that corn or beans? Or that's corn or beans last year. It's got to be corn this year. Whatever. You know, Dad, whatever. You know. I get excited about that. God did that. That's a miracle. Every single time this dead seed gets thrown into the ground and somewhere along the line, he says, you know, and it starts growing in both directions and produces a hundred more seeds per plant. That one seed then produces a hundred more or so, I'm guessing, probably more than that. It's amazing. 
That's all Paul's saying. I mean, I did plant. Paulus did water. Good, great. Those are what ministers do. But God gave the increase, and so we give God the credit for that. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. There is a reward for that. God is proud of that. He's happy for you when you do that, when you plant those seeds. It's a very good thing. Accept that. We don't have to say, oh, it's not me. No, I'm going to be standing in line. I did a lot of planning. You said you were going to reward me. I'm not going to be bossy like this at all. But, you know, for the sermon, for the teaching. I expect it. And I'm not going to say, no, 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 you keep it. I'm going to say, thank you. Absolutely, I'll take that reward. Anything you want to give me, God, I will absolutely take from you. Everything. We got to get that way and know that. But that's for the planters and the waterers. It's important. Verse 9, Paul says about himself and Apollos, we are God's fellow workers. Hmm, that's interesting, isn't it? Well, think of it that way. You think about... Um, you know, you guys are co-laborers with us in the ministry, right? Uh, and we have people that serve teachers and, and cleaners and, and graphic artists and things like that. They, co- they co-labor with us in the ministry, but you don't really think I'm co-laboring with God himself. You know, it's a big deal. That's a, that's a neat thing. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. He switches gears. He's mixing his metaphors now. You're a field, not you're a building. Let's work on the building thing. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. And only then, by the way, will you know. So Paul says, I laid a foundation with you people of Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the most important part of the building is the foundation Anybody that lives in Maryville knows that. <laughs> Everybody's basement in Maryville leaks. All of them. As a realtor, you think just want to, I'm trying to find a, a cheap house with a dry basement. <laughs> oh, sorry. Did I laugh out loud? No. They're all wet. We live on top of a spring, and it just boils up through the... Nothing you can do about it. This is where we live. Unless you had a really good builder. There are a few houses where the foundation was really good. They didn't do the 36, they went 40, you know, according to code. They didn't put some rebar in at the bare minimum. They, you know, loaded it up. And they poured it right. And they did it at the right temperature, and the right cure rate. And they did it at the right time of the year. And they let it set. And they let it get hard before they began. They weren't in a hurry. Some of those basements exist. Those foundations are so important. That's what turns... What, what probably would be a 50-year house before it cracks to a 150-year-old house. It makes a tremendous amount of difference. All about how that concrete was poured, when it was poured, or laid, block laid, if it was at the time. You know, How deep were the footings? Way below frost. Yeah, I know, for the most part, we only have 18 inches of frost. But there are those years when it goes further, you know? 
And those are the years that really mess up a basement. So I went really, really deep so that we never have a problem with it, you know. It always baffles me when I look at some of the building things that people do, and it's like, do you know, you know, well, you don't need, an, you don't need to put another stud there. What you're supposed to do, you know, whenever I do drywall, if I ever do drywall, it drives me crazy when we come to the corners and there's just a two-by-four there, and I've got to somehow match this here and this here, and we're both supposed to screw at an angle in there to that one two-by-four. At the time, when I was doing the construction, it's like $2.50 to put another board there. Put another board there. Just stick it in there. You don't need that. Uh, please tell me we're not building this house based off the bare minimum of need. All that to say, you have the opportunity as someone who owns the temple of the Lord to build a really solid foundation in your life. To don't be in a hurry. To let that foundation go deep into your life and watch it and let it grow and mature and cure and then begin to build on top of it the right things. Don't get cheap. Don't go fast. Wait. Do it right. That's what Paul's saying. If you're going to build on another man's foundation, make sure you do it carefully. Make sure that it's of the best materials. You know, don't, 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 don't settle. Don't compromise. Because he says eventually it's all going to be exposed. I mean, we know the story of the three little pigs. Well, this is basically it in the Bible. Some people are building with bricks. Other people are in a hurry and they're building with straw. And guess what? Fire will tell. Fire being what? Trials. Tribulations, difficulties. I'm the most mature Christian ever. I'm ready to go start a church. I'm going to go plant a church. I was ready to plant a church eight years before I was ready to plant a church. And my pastor knew it. Thank goodness. I'm ready. I got it. You don't got it. I do. Nope. Wait. I heard the Lord say wait. So I waited and I waited and I waited. And I was impatient and waited impatiently, but I waited. God's faithful. Let God build on your life. Let him do that work. I don't think that's what we're working on. I want to start decorating, you know. I want to start putting pictures on the wall. We haven't even drywalled yet. You know, we don't even have AC going or heat. You know, we got to regulate. We got to get the basics down first before we can start accessorizing this home. No, no, no. You don't want to do landscaping now. We haven't even done the backfill in the basement yet. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. Some of you do. We get in a hurry as Christians. God knows exactly what you and you and you and you need today for your construction of your spiritual house. And you need to let him build that today and trust him. He's a master builder. He's an expert in making solid, hard, beautiful, soft at the same time Christians. Let him do it. If anyone builds on this foundation, it's all going to become clear because the day will, will declare it. It's going to be revealed by fire. The fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it, endures, he will receive a reward. There's another reward. If anyone's work is burned, he'll suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. That which is of worthy of God will stay. That which isn't, it'll burn up. I kind of like it when God does that periodically in my life. You know, some of you know what it is to burn off a field, you know. 
Every once in a while, you got to burn off a field. That's a good thing. You have some loss. Even some wildlife sometimes gets trapped in it. And that's a sad thing. It's not a great thing, but it's essential for the health of the property. It's important for that. We can see what happened when they try to, um, you know, mega manage, you know, our forestry in this world or in this country. And it's just, this has not worked well. Um, we needed to let that, that fuel, you know, those pine needles burn periodically, the two or three inches of them, because the, the trunks of those trees can handle that kind of heat. It can put up with two or three inches of needles. It can let that happen. It doesn't kill the trees. It just kills, you know, and, and clear. But you let 18 inches, that's a whole other level of heat. That's something the trees can't survive, you know. That's why they're so worried about the sequoias. When the forest fires get close to the sequoias, they have been managed for so long. Anything hits those, those 1,000-year, 2,000-year-old trees, they're gone. There's too much heat, and we ain't got enough rakes to clean it up before it happens. We've done it to ourselves. Likewise, as a Christian, we need to let God come through our lives and burn away that which needs to be burned away and continue to build in our lives. Blessed subtractions, we call them, in our lives. Let God take it away. It's okay. We try to hold on to stuff sometimes. Verse 16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. A lot of people use this for food and stuff, and I suppose that's okay. I mean, we do want to eat healthier, but can you imagine if you were to obey the list of healthy foods? I mean, I mean, it says right here in verse 16, 17, you're not supposed to smoke. You're also not supposed to have a Twinkie either. I mean, you got to apply. If you're going to apply it, you got to apply it, you know. And I like my Twinkies. So in context, what's he talking about? He's not talking about physical. He's not talking about the body. He's talking about your spiritual house. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Be careful. Don't defile it. Don't be doing things that defile it. Don't be doing things that you, that you, that you wouldn't do in a temple of God. Uh, exterior, you know, like you wouldn't come into church and do that. What makes you think you should do that? With your body, don't you know, he says in a couple of places, don't you know that when you go, he says a harlot, but you can pretty much put anything there. But harlot, he uses, when you go into a harlot, don't you know you're joining Christ to that harlot? Well, that makes your skin crawl to even think about something like that. Ooh, no, I thought I was by myself, you know, I thought that was just me. No, 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 no. When you did it, he never leaves you or forsakes you means I bring him into that scenario. I bring him into that scene. He's watching that with me. He's doing that with me. He's drinking that with me. He's smoking that with me. He's shooting that with me. I'm doing that with him. I'm making him a partaker in that. That should nauseate us. And that's what Paul's saying. Don't defile it. Be holy. God is holy. He wants to live in a holy temple. So keep your house clean, you know. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. If you think you're all that and smart, humble up a little bit and then get really smart, you know. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. That's out of Job. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. This is where I told you he was going to conclude with this. You've got everything. 
Nobody's more special than anybody else. You've got it all. And so he puts a colon there and he says, here's what you have. This is the idea. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, that's Peter, or the world or life or death, or things present or things to come, all are yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Quit being divided is what he's saying. Quit being divided over these things. They're all yours. Some people plant, some people water. Don't be jealous of one another. Just do what God's called you to do. You have Paul, you have Apollos, you have Cephas. Everybody can listen to everybody and be glorified, knowing that the same person, the Holy Spirit, is speaking through any one of those men. It's the Holy Spirit we're excited about. Who wants to listen to Peter if he's not filled with the Spirit, right? So the only thing I like about Peter is the fact that the Holy Spirit speaks to him, and that's all Paul's saying. The things in the world, we're in life, we're in death. Everybody does that. Everybody has it. We all own it. Present, things to come, they're all yours. You are Christ, and Christ is God's. And he's going to go on. Next week, it's a little even harder. He's working his way into it. Here's the thing. Paul is being rough in this letter, and this is where we're going to close. He was gentle with him when he first came to him. He's being a little rough with him here. But he was able to write 2 Corinthians because they received this 1 Corinthians letter. They received it. They remember what he was like. And for him to talk to them like this is like, you know what? He truly loved us and he's talking like this. He must really think this is what's best for us. And I believe that. And he believed that. And they received it. And I mean, they really received it. So be encouraged. It may sound rough, but the Corinthians believed it. And they were changed. The church was changed. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for these two chapters. We thank you for Paul. Thank you for his heart. I, I think of him as the tough guy, Lord, but he, here you show him and demonstrate. Um, he's just a, he's a, he's a loving, loving man who knows you and who needs his kids this, as a spiritual father for them to straighten up or else they're going to be, well, they're going to be hurt and they're hurting each other. So I thank you for his boldness when he needs to be bold. Thank you for the discipline he's showing to this church, um, how important it is that we have those people in our lives. And we thank you that your word is so gentle in teaching us, and we've been taught. Thank you for that tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.